Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You don't have to be a Christian to know the words of this famous hymn. It is an anthem of redemption and a celebration of salvation. But what is salvation? In the previous episode, I briefly mentioned soteriology as the study of salvation. It can sound like a complex topic requiring decades of religious study at a prestigious university and a perfect knowledge of the Hebrew language. This study entails diving into the nature of salvation by asking what it is, how we attain it, its effects on our everyday life, and what it reveals about our God. However, to begin this study of salvation, we must first understand the gospel. Both salvation and the gospel are two buzzwords within Christian spheres used with regularity, but with little explanation. We can take our understanding of the gospel and salvation for granted, taking it to two extremes, either overcomplicating it through intense intellectualism or skimming over the gospel and salvation entirely rather than exploring them and their relationship. For some, you may have enjoyed our discussions, at least that's my hope, but still feel as though salvation is out of reach. As you join us in this episode, I invite you to engage in salvation and the gospel not as a passive topic to intellectualize, but as good news to accept. Joining me in this conversation is Justin Coe, founder of the Digital Missionary Academy and host of his podcasts, Digital Missions Podcast and The Move. I'm your host, Nicole Dominguez, and this is Faith Reconstructed. I think the modern iteration of Christianity has been distilled down to like the spiritual self-help kind of practice. Jesus, self-help kind of blended one and the same. And there's a certain element that sure, living your life according to the teachings and the example of Jesus is one of those things that seems to lead to human flourishing for sure. Like I don't want to discount that. I think that when we collapse the advice that's given in scripture with the actual gospel message itself, we actually do the gospel a disservice. In other words, we can lose the plot. When we don't have a firm grasp on what the gospel is, we can confuse valuable advice given in the scriptures with the gospel itself. This can come in the form of believing that abiding by a distinct diet Wearing or not wearing jewelry and certain clothing, not consuming caffeine or black pepper, and following rules can quote-unquote prove to God that we're worthy of salvation. In the same way, if we see the gospel as something that is only meant to improve our lives, not as a gift that we pay forward, it becomes trivialized and self-seeking. I remember reading a book, and it was distilled down in this way, that the gospel is good news, not good advice. And at least for me, growing up in the you know, Seventh-day Adventist church, at least in the circles that I grew up with, at least what stood out to me overwhelmingly, what stood out to me was that Christianity had a lot to say about how I ought to live my life. A lot of advice on how to find purpose, how to find a partner, uh, how to manage my money, how to go about the dating experience. There was you know, a lot of good advice and, and it was great. It was very helpful advice. However, what seemed to be lost in my upbringing was the sense in which the gospel was good news. It was the, the recounting of what has happened and what that now means for me. And so for me, like it, growing up, Christianity was not really a message of good news. It was a, a system of rules and laws and things that I had to measure up to. But then in my lived experience, I was always falling short of. And so it never really felt like it was good news per se. It was maybe the right news. 
it was maybe the, the best way to live my life because objectively it was true and I studied apologetics long enough to realize, oh, there's a lot of good reasons to believe that God exists and that Jesus is exactly it. However, I'll be honest, my life wasn't necessarily characterized by the type of peace and joy and life felt heavy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Justin's experience isn't rare. I, and I'm sure many others, often felt this way when observing what we thought was the gospel. In her book, Desire of Ages, Ellen G. White explains the attitude and sphere Christ was stepping into, and it sounds familiar. Quote, The principle that man can save himself by his own works lay at the foundation of every heathen religion. It had now become the principle of the Jewish religion. They robbed God of his glory, defrauded the world by a counterfeit of the gospel. They were doing the work that he desired them to do, taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look on him as a tyrant. Unquote. In modern Christianity, the gospel has become a blanket name for the law. A list of impossible rules we must follow alone to earn salvation, rather than what Galatians 5.1 tells us, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Then again, in Revelation 1.5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Living life under the type of Christianity that I had internalized all the way through school, I went to, I went to Academy K-12, through I, I did ministry uh, for 10 plus years before I had really gone face to face with the gospel and been encountered by it. But up to that point, my experience was a heavy experience. It was one that felt burdensome. And when I hear the words of Jesus that his burden is light, his yoke is easy, it felt so far away. And I think that the fundamental reason is because I approached Christianity as a system of good tenets, good advice for a living, as opposed to good news about what Jesus had done for me. When you hear gospel, translate it to good news. But let's take the time to define the gospel by asking, what is the good news? The gospel is the good news that God loves you. And I think that this is a, a, a super important thing to really actually rest on because it can be a throwaway phrase in Christianity. Of course, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. We've heard it a million times. But when does it actually land? The idea that God truly does love us. I think that the, the, the story of Scripture is one in which we are very hesitant to believe this about God, that there's an enemy who has blinded us to the very character of God, that we are tempted to believe that God is an exacting God, that he's uh, an angry God, that he delights in punishing people whenever they step out of line. If there's God on an elevator, he's the kind of guy that's smashing the door closed button rather than smashing the door open button. And so it seems as though that the popular conception of God is one who's constantly looking for an excuse to cut you off, to kick you out of the family. Think of the verse Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This verse can be uncomfortable. It sounds heavy and difficult and, most of all, exclusionary. It made us seem as though becoming saved was a shot in a barrel and once you're in, it's an uphill life of drudgery. 
We can make salvation an exclusive product, something to be bought or earned with complex terms and conditions rather than a gift freely given. However, this verse is within Christ's Sermon on the Mount. In context, everything before and after this verse is explaining that we must live in faith, treating others with love and dignity and rejecting judgment towards others. In a sinful world, this can be difficult. The quote-unquote easy way that Christ is describing isn't some fun and relaxed way of life, but legalism. Ever since the fall, we've struggled to believe that God could love us this much and struggle to not become judgmental or self-dependent on our own salvation. The narrow way is, in fact, the golden rule, a verse that comes right before verses 13 through 14. I highly recommend checking out episode 9 in the series Kingdom Manifesto found on YouTube and E.G. White's book's Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings as further resources. I think at the core, the gospel is that God loves you. And in the face of the lies from the enemy, God had a choice in how he would reveal this love towards us. And and I think that the way that he decides to do it is very strategic. Because Jesus says literally that there's no greater love than a man lay his life down for his friends. The cross, as I understand it, is not necessarily the fundamental revelation of the wrath of God. The cross is a revelation of God's love towards humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down for my friends. It's literally impossible to communicate love in a stronger sense than the giving of oneself over to another. So at the core, the gospel is the fundamental revelation that God loves you. And it's evidenced by what happens at the cross. And the impacts of what happens at the cross are far-reaching and it's transformative and it's beautiful. But I think at the end of the day, the central theme is that God loves you, evidenced by the cross. This is a miraculous and scripturally founded truth that cannot be ignored. Christian musician and spoken word artist Propaganda describes the gospel as an acronym meaning God our sins, paying everyone life. It is the reminder that the gospel isn't about earning our salvation through an arduous process. Were that possible, Christ's sacrifice would not have been needed. It's about accepting the profound truth that God saved us out of a profound love. This gift is for everyone. God is eager for others to accept the good news so they can begin a life of internal peace and joy. One of the things that I've heard a lot is that God loves us because of the cross. That the cross was somehow the thing that changed God's mind about us, which is a very peculiar thing. It seems as though that in this iteration of the air quotes gospel, the Father and Jesus are at opposite ends of the spectrum. The Father wants to slay humanity because they've fallen short of his righteousness. And Jesus is like, no, 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 they're actually kind of cool. Like, I love them. So maybe because I love them, you could love them. Is there a way that I can maybe somehow take a punishment that they deserve? And by me absorbing the punishment, it frees you from from whatever wrath that you have. And so now that you could love them, this is like a really weird iteration of salvation is that like God, the Father, and Jesus are at opposite ends. And I don't think that this is actually the case. I think that we, we see in the testimony of inspiration is that God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus are united in the act of salvation. And it's the demonstration of love. And so if we think that God, the Father, needs the cross in order to love us, I think that this is where we start to have some of the fundamental problems is that, no, 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 this is why the gospel is that God loves us. 
the, the cross exists as a demonstration of love, not as uh, the thing that earns God's love towards us. We have to remember that God is a family made up of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the Godhead as a whole that made the decision for salvation. By the way, Christ being sent to earth wasn't a last-ditch attempt to reconnect the gasp. From the moment humanity fell, the plan for salvation was set in motion. God didn't need convincing. But God is as just as he is good. Sin leads to emotional, spiritual, and mental death, and it had to be condemned once and for all. God fundamentally cannot allow sin to remain. In the same way, a parent who is watching their child suffer from cancer or an illness hates the thing that is killing their child. God hates what sin does to his children. However, chemo must be done to kill the cancer. And so Christ was able to take on the weight of the illness and the painful treatment so that we would not have to. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, does a spectacular job of breaking down the nature of Christ's relationship with the Father and their gift of salvation. As beautiful as salvation is, it feels too easy. Inclined to cynicism, we can reduce the gift of salvation to something manageable. In this way, we are both able to feel capable of earning it through a process of works and don't feel overwhelmed when accepting it. In this way, we can think we know the gospel, when in reality, we don't. It was a number of years ago, I was in Oregon at the summer camp meeting. And I remember seeing a guy on stage, and he repeated words from the scriptures that I had never noticed before. Uh, which is very bizarre, because I went through K-12 through in our academies. I was you know, involved with ministry for many, 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 many years up to this point. I'm in my you know, late 20s at this point. And he simply repeats this phrase that's found in Scripture. It's in Romans chapter 6. And it's this, this little idea, or this simple idea, not little, this idea of freedom from sin. And he simply reads this, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, up to this point, my conception of sin was that sin was, if I had to define my relationship to sin, for example, it would simply be defined as intimate. Uh, I felt completely trapped and enslaved to my sin. If I had to be honest, I've had to do an honest reckoning of how I felt my relationship to sin was. I was absolutely, utterly a slave. And there was a specific thing that stood out in my mind. And, and it stems back to kind of my childhood. When I was very young, I was exposed to pornography at a very young age. I was exposed to sexual trauma at a young age. And one of the resulting things that came from these experiences was that I developed a very long-standing addiction to pornography. It was not something that I wanted. It was something that I found myself trapped to. For, for something like nearly 20 years, I was secretly harboring an addiction to lust, an addiction to pornography. Now, thankfully, in my life lived, I was able to keep it somewhat at bay. It never seemed to impact kind of my in real life relationships. I wasn't necessarily the kind of promiscuous guy per se, at least by certain lines that we like to draw, certain definitions of promiscuous and what is right for Christians to do. But I knew inwardly that I was utterly a slave to lust. And one of the greatest fears of my life was that at some point later down in my ministry, in my life, this would all end up kind of coming to the surface. And so I was so terrified all the time. And I would read books. I'd go to seminars. I went to counseling. I bought courses. I did literally everything that I could think of. Downloading apps and getting you know, filters and deleting subscriptions and 
swearing off of media altogether and doing all the things I could possibly do to get rid of this addiction. And the more and more that I tried, what I started to realize is that this is kind of a pointless experience. Like trying doesn't seem to be the way to exit. In, in, in my kind of Christian experience up to this point, I've been taught a lot about the importance of victory over sin. That how if we have faith, then we can be made righteous. That if we live faith out well enough, then maybe one day we can be righteous. This is what righteousness by faith was kind of summed up as it was presented to me. And what, what, I, what I would learn more and more as I spent time in these circles was that if I prayed more, if I read my Bible more, if I handed out more glow tracks, if I paid tithe, sang in the choir, if I volunteered at my church during the work beat, if I did all of these different things and made a great haystack at potluck, then maybe, just maybe, one day in the future, I could possibly, hopefully, be free, get victory. And so when this verse was read to me, it struck me that the language that Paul seems to be presenting is that freedom is something that occurred 2,000 years ago. That this bond between humanity and sin was severed in a very specific moment at the cross. And that if I would just believe that Jesus had actually done what he claimed to do, that the result was that I would be set free. And not just a service level freedom, but a freedom that actually endured. For who the Son sets free is free indeed. And I remember being hit with the weight of this chapter, thinking to myself, how is it that I've never seen this before? How is it that I've never paid attention to this before? And, you know, and I always want to be charitable as I tell the story because there's a very real sense in which it was just my fault. You know, I, I have ADD, I have ADHD. I've never been one that's benefited off of the traditional education model. I was very likely the one who was sleeping in church, you know, growing up all the time. And so I don't want to say this with any level, level of criticism towards the church or pastors or mentors in my life. But I just re remember being 27 years old, hearing this message and feeling like it was the first time I ever heard this good news. And this is the sense in which I'm saying that the gospel fundamentally is good news, not good advice. It's not actually about how you can overcome or how you should live your life or how you should do this or that. And cool, it has good strategies for all of those. But fundamentally, the gospel is a revelation that Jesus has done for me what I could never do for myself. And what I would find is that as I started to very kind of cautiously, uh, very kind of skeptically, wander in this direction as I started to explore this message a little bit more, as I started to study the scriptures and to really spend time in reflection on these truths that are presented in the gospel, the more that I found that that transformative power that I was always searching for, that transformative power that I was wanting and hungering and thirsting for, the more that I actually received it by faith, and just rested in the truth that Jesus has done it for me, the more I saw this fruit showing up in my life. Please don't miss the order of Justin's testimony. Victory and transformation does not pop up after years of studying for the test of salvation and hoping we pass, but by accepting the reality that Christ already saved us. The work has been done. It's over. I would always doubt my salvation. My personal struggles felt like something I had to hide, and if I ignored them long enough, I could trick my way into holiness. It felt fickle. I am still having to actively accept that Jesus paid it all and allow my faith to be a response of the victory already won. The doubt of our salvation can crop up in the form of hyper-analyzing ourselves— if I still feel tempted by this, am I still saved? 
If I still fall, does that mean I was never really saved? Did I accept Jesus the wrong way? If I'm not seeing the fruit I should be seeing, did I lose salvation? It's a toxic loop that the devil uses to trap ourselves in a self-centric thinking. Once again, we're making salvation a tricky win, a carrot at the end of a stick. We know logically this isn't true, so how do we combat this way of thinking and simply live our salvation? Yeah, for me, one of the fundamental shifts that I needed to to be willing to walk through was to stop defining myself based off my actions. Because under the former thinking, under, under this way where I was still enslaved, I was doing good if I had a track record, right? If I went a week or two weeks or a month or maybe even a couple months without slipping and falling, then I could actually manufacture the feelings that I would translate as faith that would say, therefore, oh, then, then God is faithful. His word is, in fact, true over my life. However, when I would fall, I would weaponize those feelings to somehow say that maybe Scripture didn't, isn't actually accurate in what it is saying. Yeah, I see that, that the Scripture is revealing that I am freed from sin because of Jesus, that my old self was crucified, that explicitly I'm no longer enslaved to sin, and I'm actually taught that I must consider myself dead to sin. Sure, like Scripture can say that, But because I fell, I'm now weaponizing my lived experience against Scripture. And I think that this is really interesting because what we're actually taught about spiritual warfare is this, is that that not every thought, not every emotion is necessarily reflective of truth. That actually what we're meant to do is to renew our mind. We're actually taught to take captive thoughts and emotions, I would intuit from that as well, and to make them obedient in Jesus. And so if I'm ever experiencing a moment in my life where scripture says explicitly one thing, but my feelings say another thing, I don't interpret scripture through the lens of my feelings. What I do is I interpret my feelings through the lens of scripture. And so what I actually had to come to terms with is that, you know what, even though I might feel hopelessly trapped, hopelessly enslaved, this doesn't somehow undo the revelation of Jesus. Sit with that reality for a minute. This is something that hit me between the eyes. As someone who is naturally inclined to anxiety and big emotions, it's easy for me to use them as a marker for my faith. As a result, when I felt an overwhelming distance from God or in apathy towards Him, I would equate those emotions as a marker of my faith, and therefore salvation. Experiencing distance from God is real. We can feel as though He's far away or that we've fallen short of our faith's daily maintenance. However, the desire to bridge that connection cannot be from a frantic fear that our salvation sits in the balance because we quote-unquote fell off the wagon of prayer and Bible reading. God hasn't gone anywhere. He's still there, in step with you, waiting for you to reach out. Because we feel as though God is far, doesn't mean He is. Hebrews 10, 12-14 reminds us, But when God had entered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies could be made a footstool by his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This means our feelings do not dictate our salvation. My feelings cannot pull Jesus off the cross. My feelings cannot crucify Jesus again. He is, in fact, raised from the dead. And since he is raised from the dead, 
I actually have participated through faith in his death and in his resurrection. I now have access to the life that I was created to have. I have the mind of Christ. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I'm actually now living as a manifestation of what Jesus has purchased. And so if I fall, cool, like that's okay. Um, let's not say that it's okay, but, but like it's an experience. Like we, ha- we happen to fall, like true. But I am not defined by a falling. And, and this is where things started to shift for me. I think it's in the book of Proverbs where it says that the righteous man falls down but gets up again. I used to hear that verse un- under the old way of, of understanding the gospel as good advice was, hey, you fell down, but get back up, get back up, get back up, get back up. Like the, the central focal point of that verse was get back up. And yes, absolutely. If you find yourself falling down, get back up for sure. But what I started to realize that it's the righteous man who falls. And it's not somehow that you are righteous only if you're standing. That somehow if you fall, you go from righteous to now rejected. You go from righteous to now, you know, uh, alien from God. That you somehow go from righteous to wicked. That you go from righteous to sinner. No, no, no. The righteous fall down sometimes. But they're still the righteous. The point actually isn't get back up. Although you should 100% get back up. The point is, is that you've been fundamentally shifted from one category to another. You've gone from death to life. You've gone from darkness to light. You're no longer a goat, but you're a sheep. You're no longer an uh, alien, but now you're intimate with God. You're no longer categorically a sinner, but now you're righteous. And so don't allow the enemy to succeed in causing you to think that because you fall, that this is who you are. How often do we allow ourselves to be defined by our failures? In doing so, we're placing more mental energy on what you're saved from than the person who saved you. We should understand the magnitude of sin, but only so we can accurately understand the magnitude of God. We are redeemed. We have a new life and identity that is ours to claim and to live within. To linger on what we were perpetuates an attitude of self-flagellation, where the anthem of mea culpa is sung louder than the praise of salvation. It's just interesting because we're explicitly taught not to do that. Romans 6, 11, I believe it is, so that you must consider yourself dead to sin. Like all too often, we consider ourselves less than that. We consider ourselves still tethered to sin. We consider ourselves still slaves to sin. And I think that that's literally like the fundamental shifting points of the Christian experience. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you believe that you're sin awaiting to happen, if you believe that you are just, you are a sinner in the sense that like, you can't help but acting out sin. If you believe that you're a slave to it, well, the fruit of that is gonna show up in your life. It just will. But if you believe that because of Jesus, the old you is dead and all the old things have passed away and now you're a new creature in Christ, if you actually believe that, that you, are the in, you have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling in your own person, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you believe it, what starts to show up is that as you walk according to this belief, the fruits of the Spirit start to show up. There's a real power to what we allow our mind to be captive to. And what we're just simply saying is that the gospel reveals that something has happened. So believe it. We believe it because he said it. And when he says it, he's faithful to do it. To reiterate, in order to live our new identity as saved individuals, we need to believe it, then live it. There will be days when we don't feel particularly holy, but that's okay. 
But we must claim our salvation every day and live it as though it is true, because it is. Let's clarify, what Justin and I are referring to isn't manifestation. A popular concept in the New Age belief system, manifestation is the belief that if we want something enough, we can think it into existence. We're definitely not talking manifestation. We're definitely not saying, oh, we're just going to speak things into existence. This is not like the self-deluded, self-help, this kind of pagan, new age manifestation of truth. I'm going to just speak my best life. I'm going to, I'm going to repeat my mantra that I'm going to win the lottery every single day and one day it will happen because I spoke into existence. No. What we're talking about, as I understand it, is biblical confession. What we are saying is that God says something, and I'm speaking the same word as what God says, and so I'm finding agreement with the text. I'm finding agreement with the revelation of Jesus Christ. My words have no power. Me, me simply saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, no, of course not. Like, I have never looked at the sky and saw the sun and told the sun to be still, and the sun was still. But this is the difference between me as a created being and God who spoke worlds into existence. His word literally has creative power. If he looks at the sun and says, sun, be still. If he looks at the waves and says, be calm, they become calm. If he says that the sky is green, but it's actually blue, the very fact that those words come out of his mouth make the sky green. Like it is the thing that all of reality conforms to the expressed word of God. And so what happens is, is that we're not deluding ourselves and saying, oh, you know what, we're just going to believe what we want to believe, what we're hoping for. No, no, no. What we're saying is that God says something about me. He says that I was crucified with him. He says that I have been set free. He says I've been cleansed from all sins. He says I'm no longer in the flesh, but I'm in the spirit. He actually calls me holy, righteous, set apart. He calls me complete and perfect in him. And so what we're saying is, even though I don't feel that way all the time, I'm not to be led around like a dog on a leash by my feelings and by the circumstances of my life. And this doesn't mean that the feelings are bad. I don't want to demonize feelings. Like, listen, feelings are meant to be felt, so feel all the feels. But what we are saying is that feelings aren't Lord, Jesus is. There's a saying. Feelings are like toddlers. You shouldn't shove them in the trunk, and you shouldn't let them drive the car. It's interesting how in deconstructing many of our misconceptions, we must confront our emotional wellness. As Justin reminds us, our feelings are meant to be felt. However, we must be grounded in biblical truth. As odd as it sounds, there is great relief in not having our salvation be dependent on us. It still blows my mind how God's words are formative. He spoke the world into existence and he can speak peace into our lives. This is why having scriptures to remind us of our salvation is imperative. When we speak the words of God, we are allowing God to speak into existence the promises he has already fulfilled. In other words, it's reminding us of his character. God isn't here to lie to us. He's not here to trick us. What God wants is for us to simply believe him. When we believe, we live in transformation. We don't have to act like we're saved until we're saved, but because we're saved. Think of it this way. Say you've lived in poverty most of your life. Then one day you're told a massive inheritance has been left to you. No paperwork needs to be filled. No proof of identity needs to be shown. It's yours, free and clear. Some of us may think it's a mistake or become stressed when making a transaction, wondering if the money may still be there. However, your stress doesn't change the reality that the money is yours. 
the fund's availability also isn't linked to your behavior that day. According to 1 Peter 1, 3-5, the same is said for salvation. I think that one of the logical conclusions of this, the, the realization that it's there for us, we just tap into it through faith, and that we just receive it as a free gift, one of the, one of the fruits of that is peace. Like, this is how we can be men and women of peace in a crazy, wild world. Jesus says, I give peace to you. Not, as the, peace, not, not the kind of peace that the world understands. Like, we can literally live at rest. And I think that this is so crucial for those of us who are Adventists. Like, listen, embodied in kind of one of our core tenets is this idea of, like, God has done it all, so I can just rest. Sabbath is, yes, it is a reflection of creation. But if you go to Deuteronomy 5, it's also a reflection of freedom. You were enslaved to the foreign power. You were uh, uh, tossed to and fro by the whims of your, your, your former master, but you have been redeemed. You have been purchased. You have been released and you've been freed from that foreign power. And so now you actually get to rest. And so the fruit of receiving good gospel is, I actually don't have to run around like a chicken with my head cut off. I don't have to run around uh, feeling as if my Christian experience is meant to be heavy and burdensome all the time. I can actually realize what Jesus said to be true. I can actually realize that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. I can actually love God because I've been so thoroughly loved and I can still live this life to, towards obedience, right? First John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Because I realize that it has been given to me and that God is faithful, I can actually now, empowered through the very spirit that I was lacking, live faithfully and obediently without a sense of burden or duty or like this is like a horrible thing around me. People think that Christianity is just this rule-keeping thing that you're forever perpetually going to be fighting this war against yourself to, to, to just keep in line. No, what I'm saying is that the gospel is transformative. Like there's an actual transformation in your being that you change like God literally takes out the stony heart, the deceitful heart, the wicked heart, and gives you his heart. He gives you a soft and tender heart. And from there, we actually get to live the way that we were originally intended to live. We can live not, not in hopes of obtaining righteousness and keeping the law one of these days, but because we are righteous, our lives reflect the goodness of God in this way. What kind of gospel would it be that God loves you, but you're still enslaved, you're still screwed over, like your whole life is going to suck, but one day, like, no, 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 the goodness of God is revealed in the very fact that he has released us, in the very fact that he has subverted the kingdom of the enemy and taken dominion over death and freed us from its control. There are some who may rally against the simplicity of salvation. The reward is too great and the process too easy to be believed. I have known people who are genuinely angry at the idea of easy grace. However, we mustn't confuse easy grace with cheap grace. There is nothing cheap about the sacrifice that Christ made for our salvation. Therefore, we can't cheapen it by thinking that we must also suffer as though Christ is expecting, demanding, that we suffer too. The good news is good because it releases us from our burdens. One, one of the criticisms that I hear about this message of freedom and how, how simple it is, he's already done it, just believe, is that this is oftentimes mistaken with like cheap grace. And, and no, we're actually saying it's completely different. Grace has not been cheap. It's the most expensive thing ever purchased before. It literally, it required the very blood of Jesus to 
require the life of God. So how could grace be cheap? What we are saying, though, is that grace is free. It's an expensive gift secured in the person of Jesus that he offers for free to me. And I can just simply hold my hands out and say, thank you. And then now that I have received the gift, that gift includes power. And that power enables me to live according to the gift. Paul seems pretty adamant that that salvation, that righteousness actually comes through faith in Jesus. And truly believing that he is faithful when he says that it's finished, that he's done everything that needed to be done. In fact, he goes further And I think it's Galatians where he says, if righteousness were through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. That that if there's any sentiment in my being that I think that, oh, by me praying more, by me reading my Bible more, by me paying tithe or whatever the thing is, that somehow I'm earning righteousness, that it's dependent on me actually living up to some manufactured standard or not, that I'm actually undoing the power of the cross. Righteousness cannot come through my own actions. Because I'm falling short all the time. And so it seems as what Paul's solution is simply this. Instead of trying to become righteous, simply receive the gift of righteousness, which is given to all who believe for free. And the beautiful thing is, is that having received the gift of righteousness, now we get to live according to the gift. Deconstructing is, in essence, decluttering. We are forced to observe concepts that we take for granted or never truly allowed ourselves to explore. Salvation is a core principle of Christianity. And when we remove the clutter and the complex terms and conditions surrounding it, we are left with the good, good news. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. An Adventist Learning Community Podcast.